bundle of cash on it, in it, or under it. Next he checked the bookshelves with the same result, after which he stood wondering how he had been such a fool. How would his quarry know which side of the room was his? Or even that there were sides? Tom was untidy, but a careful ransacking of every part of his side revealed no bundle. Remained only the closets. This time Evan went through Tom's first, without success. Then he opened the door to his own. In these walk-in closets, the architect's true genius showed best, for he was one of those men who never forgot any aspect of his past, nor failed to understand how much junk young men and women could accumulate during the course of a year occupying the same room. The walk-in closets ran the full length of the room and were three feet wide. At one end were racks of drawers, then came open shelves, then, for a full half of the area, vacant space. Only in the matter of lighting were they poorly equipped. As a result of the dean's fear of fire in an enclosed area, twenty-five-watt bulbs no brighter. On springs the doors closed after they were opened, yet another crotchet of the dean's he abhorred disorder and deemed open doors and drawers a danger as well as a legal liability. Evan flicked the closet light on and stepped inside. The door swung shut behind him, but he was used to that. He saw the bundle at once, hanging from the ceiling on a cord. He rushed to it eagerly, not surprised that his victim had chosen to secrete it inside and inside, nor that it hung in an area where there were no drawers or shelves. He didn't look up at the ceiling. He looked no higher than the bundle, which, even in the dim light, he could see was bound tightly in saran wrap. The notes showed through clearly. Hundred-dollar bills. They seemed new their edges unswollen by the abuse of many fingers as they sat in a neat, flat brick. Suddenly, his hands already grabbing at the brick, he stopped a moment to contemplate the magnitude of his coup. The triumph he couldn't confide to anyone else as long as he wanted to blackmail Motormouth. Did he want to continue the blackmail? After all, he didn't need the money. It was simply his choice of weapon. What he reveled in was the knowledge that he, Evan Pugh, a mere nineteen-year-old chub sophomore, had the power to torment another human being to the point of extreme mental torture. Oh, it was sweet. Of course he'd go on blackmailing Motormouth. His movement resumed. He took hold of the plastic-wrapped packet. When it didn't budge, he yanked at it sharply. An impatient jerk that saw it come away dropped downward to his hips. His hands followed, unwilling to give up their prize. In the same instant there was a loud sound incorporating both a roar and a swish. As the terrible pain invaded his upper arms and chest, Evan genuinely thought he had been bitten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. He dropped the brick of money and clutched at whatever was engulfing him, his fingers closing on cold steel fixed in his flesh. Not one, but a whole row of daggers, deep in his flesh, down past the bone. 
The shock had been too sudden for a scream, but now he began to scream shrilly, hoarsely, wondering why his mouth was full of foam, but screaming, screaming, screaming. The noise percolated out of the closet into the room, but there was no one present to hear it. That it didn't penetrate into the corridor was due to the architect, very much aware of soundproofing, and endowed besides with a bounteous budget. The Parsons wished something really first-class if they had to part with a Rodin and some Henry Moores. Those couldn't possibly be housed in or near rubbish. It took Evan Pugh two hours to die, his lifeblood leaking away, his legs refusing to work, his breathing one distressed gasp after another. His only consolation as consciousness left him was that the police would find the money and motor...